Hebrews chapter 10. It just so happens that in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews, we are in verse 23, which is very apropos for our situation today. The Holy Spirit has us in a perfect place. This is a great portion of text to be speaking about. Let's read it together and then let's pray. Verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 10 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Lord, thank you for this word. We say yes and amen. We believe that, God, you are faithful. And we believe that we have a great hope in you, in the person of Jesus Christ and in the gospel, in the inheritance laid up for us in heaven, in your coming, in your near and present help. Lord, you are our refuge and our strong tower, our strength, Lord. Thank you for this hope that you've given us. And It's been a gnarly week for us, Lord, and we're asking that you would teach us to hold fast the confession of our hope. We're asking that we would be a people who would not waver, trusting that, Lord, you are good and you are faithful. Increase our faith today, Lord. We believe, but help our unbelief. And help us even to believe for our friends, friends of ours that have lost their homes, that have lost everything. We bring them before the throne of grace, and we've got faith to believe you for good things in the midst of trial, Lord. And so speak to us today. Holy Spirit, come. We need to be instructed about the glory of Jesus Christ and the glory of the gospel and this great hope that we have in him. Teach us, Holy Spirit. Make us men and women who would hold fast the confession of our faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, two things we need to keep in mind as we have this Bible study this morning. Number one, that we have just entered into the application part of the book of Hebrews Starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and going all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, we had a theological discourse. We had an argument for the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. From 1, 1 to 10, 18, we've had a theological argument for the preeminence of Jesus Christ over the pillars of Judaism and over everything else that exists. And after giving us this lengthy theological discourse, now in the middle of chapter 10, the author turns to application, as is so often the format of the New Testament epistles. And so we need to be remembering now, as we're working our way through the rest of the book, the theology that we've learned, even better said, the Christology that we've learned, the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done and what he is still to do. So we need to keep that in mind, that we're working on application now in the book of Hebrews. And the second thing that we need to keep in mind is the context. Very important for us this morning, because the context of Hebrews was one of persecution and subsequent personal loss. Persecution and personal loss. They were experiencing persecution at the hand of the Roman Empire. There had been a fire in Rome. Rome had burnt. And Nero was a Caesar in Rome. And Nero, looking for an apt scapegoat, turned to the Christians and blamed them. And government-sanctioned persecution came upon the Christians. Their religion was once approved. It now became religio illicita. That is an illegal religion. They went from being accepted members of society to being rejected, to being the hunted, and soon to being the killed. So there is this context of persecution that, listen very carefully, society at the time of the book of Hebrews being written has turned against the church. There is a brand new friction. There is a point of contention between general society and the church of Jesus Christ at the time of writing the book of Hebrews. And this persecution, this tension would afford them some personal loss. We can understand that at this time. Look forward in verse 32 of chapter 10. The author says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. So they had already experienced some conflict and suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. They had become the scorn of the public. Public opinion was turning against them and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. They held their ground previously with the rest of Christians. Verse 34, 
For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. They have lost property. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. So persecution and personal loss. They knew what it was like for society to be against them. And they knew what it was like to suffer immediate loss, even loss of property. This is very similar to our situation today. In the last week, there has been unprecedented attacks against the church of Jesus Christ in light of Proposition A and its passing. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news stories, but you ought to. There's been attacks on individual Christians. There's been assaults. There's been vandalism. There's been threats, the like of which would cause a lot of people to be persecuted. Prosecuted, rather, is a word I meant. There's been infiltration of churches. There's been disruption. There's been obscenities performed in churches during service while people invade. There's been a subtle, but to be sure, present change in some public opinion about the church of Jesus Christ. And for the passing of Proposition 8, the conservative Christian church is by some people being blamed. There's a shift happening right now about the way the church is perceived. Not everyone will turn against the church, but some will. Society is becoming more and more dichotomous. It is simultaneously becoming more secular and more religious. The lines are being drawn. And we, as the church of Jesus Christ, will find ourselves on a side of that line. And it will cause an increased degree of friction in our society. Resulting in, perhaps, a never experienced before in this nation sort of persecution against the church. That's the very context in which the book of Hebrews is written. And then we too have experienced personal loss, not because of persecution, but because of the fires. Fire in Santa Barbara County, we've had several people from our church lose their homes. One lady from our church in a 12-hour period lost her job. Her father had a stroke and her house burnt to the ground. She didn't get anything out. So we're in a context right now where there are some very real losses. There are some very real fears. There are some very real lines being drawn in the sand. There is now in our hearts a simultaneous sense of public opposition and personal loss. And it is to this very feeling that the book of Hebrews speaks. And it's into this very context that the Hebrew Christians were given these points of application. The points of application that we'll look at today are a very real and effective protocol for times like these. I want us to get a little broader snapshot now as we read verses 19 through 25. Verse 19, the beginning of the application of the book of Hebrews, we covered it a couple weeks ago, says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another toward loving good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now we have these wonderful points of application, and we'll unpack them this week and over the next week. But one of the things that we see that emerges from these verses is that great triad of Christianity. That great triad of Christianity. You're familiar with it probably from the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. The closing verse of that chapter says, And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. 
the great triad of Christianity, these, as we might call them, theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. A virtue is called theological when it has God as its object, and that is the object of these things here. We have these theological virtues, and they're usually understood in their connectivity in this way. There is no love without hope. There is no hope without love, and neither hope nor love without faith. And so we have the triad, faith, hope, and love. There is no love without hope. There is no hope without love. And there is neither hope nor love without faith. The connectivity of the three as seen throughout the New Testament. And we see them emerge now from this passage. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And verse 24 says, and let us consider how to spur one another on to love. Faith, hope, and love. The great triad of Christianity. Things that in times like these, we've got to cling to. We've got to remember the love of God. We've got to remember to love one another. We've got to have faith in God, which yields hope a sure expectation of good things, better things to come. And then we have in these verses three let us statements that are very important. Verse 22, let us draw near. And the idea of draw near we spoke about a couple weeks ago is worship, okay? So in the context of difficulty, uncertain times, public opposition and personal loss, the first thing that he told the Hebrews to do was to make sure they were a worshiping people. Mark it well. First thing he says by way of application, let us draw near, meaning let us worship. The second let us statement is in verse 23, let us hold fast to confession, dealing with our belief, meaning in times of public opposition, and personal loss. We need to continue to believe. We need to cultivate belief. And then the final let us statement in verse 24, let us consider how to spur one another on and not forsake meeting together. So the idea of fellowship, very important in a context of public opposition and personal loss that we maintain fellowship. In times of difficulty, we need to stay in an attitude of worship, a place of belief, and a community of fellowship. And really, in times of difficulty, we're challenged on these points. You'll find this. Some of you are experiencing this right now. In times of difficulty, it's these very areas where we're challenged. We find that all of a sudden, in the face of personal loss, it's hard to worship. We understand that. Nobody's saying it's easy. But the Bible is saying the protocol is to do it. Are things hard right now? Are things uncertain? Let us draw near. You'll find an attack against that. You'll find a challenge in your own heart because of circumstances compounded by the schemes of the enemy. And you'll start to lose that heart of praise, but you need to be able to say, Lord, you give and you take away, but blessed be your name. And we need to be cultivating in these times individual and and corporate heart attitudes of worship. You see, because worship will yield in us greater belief. Because worshiping brings us into the presence of God. And a moment in the presence of God can dispel so many doubts, so many worries, so much concern. It can really deal with that feeling of being overwhelmed and afraid. Moments in the presence of God can. And that then bolsters belief. So we need to maintain an attitude of worship, which will yield belief. And then we'll find ourselves wanting to stay knitted into fellowship, sticking with the body. You see the proclivity? for the first century Hebrew Christians was in difficult times to remove themselves from fellowship. I don't know why we have that same proclivity, but we certainly do, don't we? In hard times, we often remove ourselves. We have all sorts of excuses. I just need some time alone. I just need to figure it out. I just need to get my head straight. I'm just going through a thing right now. I met a guy the other day on the streets of Carpinteria. It's just 
on my way to the church office here and I saw him and knew he hadn't been to church in months and just stopped and said, hey, brother, what's going on in your life? Where are you out? We miss you. We want to see you. Come back to the body. And he said, you know, I'm just going through something right now and I, I just need time away. And, you know, people expect me to be kind of heavy-handed and in your face, so I like to shock him every once in a while and just be chill. So I, I kind of let him slide on that, you know, for the moment. But in, in my mind, I was saying, brother, that is exactly what you don't need. Time away from the body is never the prescription of the Word of God. It is never. It is always the lie of Satan. Separate yourself from the body for a while. Go figure it out. You'll be okay. Hey, man, that might seem wise to you. That might seem right to you, but the Bible doesn't say that. I'm going to go ahead and side with the Bible. In difficult times, when you most feel like you want to flee, you got to cling. So the book of Hebrews is telling us to cling to the Lord, to cling to faith, to cling to hope, and cling to one another. The declaration of every Christian is we need one another. We are called the body of Christ. And it's a weird thing about a body. It needs itself. And when it's missing parts of itself, it doesn't function correctly and may even cease to function. So in the face of public opposition and when dealing with personal loss, we need to cultivate an attitude of adoration which yields a deeper, more sincere faith which will keep us knit into the body of believers, which keeps us in a safe and victorious place. That is where we will experience that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. As opposed to when we give in to grumbling and complaining, when we give in to doubts. It's okay to have doubts, but deal with them. Don't give in to them. Go to the Word of God. Go searching with God. And we remove ourselves from the body. We put ourselves in a weak place. We set ourselves up for failure. Worship, belief, and fellowship, they will often fall in that order. So be careful and check yourself in times of difficulty. Now, narrowing on, on verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. The importance of holding fast, it's been a common theme through the book of Hebrews. We've seen it repeated over and over, over and over, that we are to hold fast. In fact, the book of Hebrews says in a couple verses that it is absolutely imperative. You have no other choice. If you find yourself letting go, you are in serious trouble. If you find yourself in the proverbial drift, it's time to wake up. thing about drifting is it's almost imperceivable until the storm comes. The drift is always subtle. It always begins to set in in calm waters, in times of plenty, in abundance. We find ourselves drifting. And then when the storms hit, we find that we've lost that anchor to our soul. And it is often a place of shipwreck. So the book of Hebrews is telling us to hold fast. There are two different Greek words that convey this idea of holding fast in the book of Hebrews, and they're synonyms. And the idea is basically to keep secure, to keep firm possession of, adhere firmly to, to remain closely united with. Four of those verses that speak of this in the book of Hebrews, we'll read right now, we have them on the screen. Hebrews 3.6 says... Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. There we see that it gives a Christian no option of letting go. Hebrews 3.14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. It is imperative. It is not optional. We must hold to the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And Hebrews 6, 18, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So again, throughout the book of Hebrews, spoken into the context of public opposition and personal loss, we have the word of God telling us to keep the truth and the person of Christ secure. Keep firm possession of it, adhere firmly to it, remain 
closely united with it. Now, with this in mind, when is it that you have to hold fast to something? Well, obviously, it's when your grasp on or nearness to that thing is challenged. Otherwise, there's no need to be exhorted to hold on unless we're challenged for that grip. What or who challenges the Christian's confession of hope? It's not hard to guess, but if we first understand what our confession of hope is, then that will help us understand how it is challenged. We have this phrase in verse 23, the confession of hope. The NIV says, the hope we profess. The New Living Translation says, the hope we affirm. So there is this hope, which we have not yet defined yet. There is this hope, and we are to confess it. We are to profess it. We are to affirm it. And we're to hold to it. What is this hope? It is imperative that we know. The Greek word used in this verse for hope is the word elpis. Elpis, and it means this. The looking forward to something with some reason for confidence respecting fulfillment. Having grounds for believing something good will happen. Notice, with some reason for confidence and grounds for believing. We have in our popular culture this phrase, I hope so. We say it all the time. Hey, you going to make it to the party? Oh, I hope so. Hey, you going to be there for the big thing? Oh, I really hope so. Do you think he's going to be okay? I hope so. What we mean by that in our society, in our vernacular, is a thinly veiled pessimistic attitude. That's really what that is when we say, I hope so. It's a nice way of saying I'm probably not going to be there. (laughs) This popular phrase is just a thinly veiled pessimism. And that phrase and that idea behind it, that colloquialism, has nothing to do with the Christian idea of hope. Nothing whatsoever. It's perverted our concept of hope. Christian hope is altogether different. Christian hope entails confidence, grounds to believe, reason to trust. Let's begin to unpack this. Christian hope has to do with the future. It affects the here and now, but it has to do with the future. In Christianese, we would say that hope is eschatological having to do with the end things, the eschaton in Greek. It is eschatological, having to do with the final workings of God, the consummation of all things, the coming of Jesus Christ. So Christian hope, properly defined, is future. It is eschatological. Hope, properly defined, is to be contrasted with despair. There's antonyms. Hope and despair. Christian hope is the opposite of despair. Now, throughout history, hope in the future, this idea of Christian hope, throughout history, hope in the future was not generally characteristic of the pagan world. In fact, the word itself was seldom used. Burial inscriptions reveal that there was no confidence in the ancient pagan world regarding an afterlife. There were illusory things. There was ideas and imagined concepts, but there was no confidence in the afterlife in the ancient pagan world. Paul acknowledges this pagan reality in Ephesians 2.12 when he says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, speaking about Christians before they came to the Lord, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Notice that the Bible makes it very clear. You're either a Christian and so you have hope or you're not a Christian and you don't have hope. Hope properly defined. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 speaks of this. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, 
Asleep was a first century euphemism for Christians who had died. A nice way of saying a Christian that was dead. It doesn't teach soul sleep. It's just the way that they said it then. We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those Christians who have already died so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. You see, there's a real difference now between Christians who have hope, who are to have hope, who are to live according to hope, grieve according to hope. It's not that we don't grieve. We grieve differently because we have this future, this eschatological hope. And this now separates us from the heathen or the pagan world because the New Testament says they have no hope. They're without God. It's a different grieving for them. The reason that we don't grieve the same way about Christians who die is what it says later on in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we shall always be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words you see the Christian has this hope of being united with loved ones that went before remember the hope is not I hope so the hope is a confidence the hope is a reasoned belief that we can expect a future good. Now, the Greek realization of hope, which was a predominant culture into which this letter was being written, the Greek realization of hope, and a common one today, was driven not by the future hope in God, but by what man considered to be his own possibilities. Hope was held as far as man could consider his own possibilities. Expectations and hopes became man's own projection of his future. What can we accomplish together? We have that much hope. That was the Greek idea of hope, and that's a prevalent idea of hope today. It's humanistic in nature. It is not theological. Theological is having to do with God. This is having to do with man. What can we possibly accomplish together? We have that much hope. But you see, as encouraging as that may seem to some, and we'll see that it's not, there are others in this world that have no hope about what they could ever accomplish. They've got no hope to overcome their circumstances. No hope for a brighter tomorrow. No expectation that a government's going to come and save them. No NGOs on the ground. Nobody coming with food. So that idea of hope, that ancient idea and that modern idea, that hope is what we can achieve together in the future leaves a large segment of the world's population utterly hopeless. See, it doesn't work. God wants to give hope to the hopeless. So there must be a different definition altogether. Therefore, hope cannot depend on upon what we can do together in the future. As cool as that may seem, the Christian idea of hope is altogether different. It's not something we can create or bring about or can do. It is entirely dependent upon God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is who he is. It is what he has done. It is what he is doing. It is what he will do. This is where Christian hope lies and nowhere else. It is placed entirely in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Anything else is not Christian hope. Anything else is not real hope. It's fleeting. It's futile. It's subject to change. Christian hope is all about the gospel and about God himself. And Christian hope is not gained by looking around the world or to others for some ground of optimism. There's no need for the Christian to look around at all because our hope was and is and is to come. 
Our hope, Jesus Christ, was and is and is to come. Our hope is the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul says, I am Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Jesus himself is the hope of the Christian. Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of his majesty among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 18 knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God." So for the Christian then, our faith and our hope are to be pinned squarely on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And our future hope is based on Christ's past and current work. It is grounded in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is what our hope is in. And when we talk about hope, we are speaking about looking forward to the accomplishment of our redemption. Remembering that our redemption is in three tenses or phases. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Amen. We are currently and daily being saved from the power of sin. Amen. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. Amen. We have been said differently. We have been justified. We are being sanctified and we will be glorified. And so when we talk about hope, we're talking about glory. We're talking about looking forward to the completion, to the accomplishment of our redemption and our salvation. And it is grounded in history. It is grounded in the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension and enthronement and intercession of Jesus Christ. And so our hope is not ethereal. Our hope is not imaginary. Our hope is real and tangible and historical and evidential. Therefore, our hope is sure. Christian hope is not based on our own experiences in this life. Those come and go. Rather, Christian hope is learned as we learn about the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we gain hope. Christian hope is learned. That's why, my dear brothers and sisters, I speak to you so frequently that it is imperative that you become a student of God, a student of God, A lover of God, absolutely. A follower of God, an obeyer of God, but a student of God. I don't know how to be a student of God without being a student of the Word of God. Endeavoring to be a student of God without being a student of the Word of God will only yield heresy, cults, and the like. You must be a student of God because hope in God is learned. And in all humility... When the rubber meets the road, when the storms of life hit and you find yourself wavering in hope, my brother, my sister, perhaps you had not been committing yourself to being a student of God. If you had, you would have learned hope. I'm not going to soft pedal that. It is your responsibility to learn hope now by learning the person of Jesus Christ and knowing the person of Jesus Christ so that when difficulty comes, you're not shaken. You're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but you're able to hold secure and firm and fast. The Christian hope is learned by understanding how finite all of our perception is and that the fullness of our life in God is yet to come. And note well that Christian hope is not based on emotion. Christian hope, rather, is a habit of the will. 
It's not according to how you feel. You decide to hope. You decide to believe. There's good reason for it. It's grounded in history and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And God's past record is your future assurance. By having weighed the evidence, having read the book, and knowing the man Jesus Christ, it is a daily act of the will to have hope. It's not according to how we feel. It's a habit of the will. Christian hope has an object. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christian hope has an object. Again, it's not ethereal. It's not something out there. It's not ambiguous. It has an object. It is Jesus. The more you know him, the greater your hope. Christian hope is according to grace and not our own performance. 1 Peter 1.13 again. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope is according to grace. God's unmerited favor lavished upon us. His acceptance of us because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The security that we have in heaven because of the finished work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension, his enthronement, and his current intercession for you. Christian hope is according to grace. Christian hope is communal or corporate. Ephesians 4 starting in verse 1. Paul says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So this hope that we have is corporate. And that's why the verses that we'll study next week tell us that it is imperative that we stay in fellowship, that we stay in the corporate body. This hope that we have is communal. And it thrives, it grows, it blossoms, it's cultivated in community. Christian hope looks forward to a future inheritance in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved for you in heaven who are protected by the power of God through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So there is an inheritance, and our hope has to do with that. That there is truly, and we'll get to this in chapter 11, there is a better place. There is a better time. We have something that is sure to look forward to. Christian hope climaxes in the Lord's coming. Titus chapter 2. Starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for, no, looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. So Christian hope climaxes in the coming of the Lord. Therefore, we are to be looking for the Lord, positioning ourselves in our heart attitudes and in our practical lives in such a way that we're ready for the coming of Jesus Christ, for the grace that shall be brought to us at the revelation of the Lord. Christian hope climaxes in his triumphant coming. Christian hope then is purifying. 1 John 3, speaking of the coming Lord, says in verses 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope 
fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. So hope has an object. There's an inheritance. It climaxes at a a coming. And when our hope is fixed on that object in that coming, it has a purifying effect in our lives. Again, it's not ethereal, it's practical. It changes the way that we live. Though Christian hope is primarily eschatological, dealing with the future, it has present and practical implications. We live differently if we're looking for Jesus. We live differently if our hope is in Him. If our hearts are in heaven, where neither rust nor moth nor fire destroys. When our hope is fixed on him, it changes the way that we live, the way that we perceive things, our priorities, and it has a purifying effect in our lives. Christian hope should be evident and will be challenged. 1 Peter 3, verses 14 through 16. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, okay, Christians suffering because they did the right thing. We should listen to this. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord, master in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. When do you need to make a defense? When something is challenged. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Therefore, Christian hope should be evident and it will be challenged. There should be an aura of hope in the Christian community. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. We're not waylaid by the trauma of this world as those who are apart from God. If your heart and your mind is fixed on the person of Jesus Christ, you're going to have a different life. It's not going to be perfect. still going to be a bit messy, but it will be different. And there'll come a time you'll need to give a defense for the hope that is within you. And so the Bible says to be ready. Now, this is encouraging. Christian hope can increase. Christian hope can increase. Look at what Paul says in Romans 15 at the close of that epistle. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice he is the God of hope and there is a possibility of abounding in hope. And that's a community that we need to be at this time. We need to be men and women who are abounding in hope. Hope can increase. Ephesians 1 speaks of the same thing. Verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. He prayed that their eyes would be enlightened, that they might know the hope of his calling. So hope can increase. It's very important for some of you this morning. It's very important for some of your loved ones, for some of your family members. That hope can increase, and we should be praying the same thing. That hearts would be enlightened so that people in our community would know the hope of his calling. It's important also to realize, because we've been accused of this, Christians have, that Christian hope, whether related to the return of Jesus or our heavenly inheritance, is not to be regarded as a form of escapism. We've been accused of that, haven't we? That we're so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. When we hope in the coming and the person of Jesus Christ, the better reality of heaven the fullness of the establishment of his kingdom, better things to come. It's not to be regarded as escapism. It relates to the plans and the purposes of God, not the fears and the failures of men. 
It's not as though humanity and its fear and its failures invented the gospel. We would not have invented such a thing that told us you're more of a failure than you think and you ought to be more afraid than you think. It's not what we would have invented. It is according to the plans and the purposes of God, not the fears and the failures of, the man, of man. Therefore, it's not to be viewed as escapism. It's according to grace and not ourselves. And that gives us confidence and constancy. It's according to God's plan, God's promises, and God's grace. Christian hope is not a consoling dream of the imagination which causes us to forget our present troubles. You're never called to forget your present troubles in the word of God. In fact, we're called to confront them head on. But boldly, bravely, with the person of Jesus Christ, with our hope fixed on him, with the provision of his spirit, as more than conquerors, we're not called to escapism. We're not called to stick our heads in the sand. We're not called to pretend that things aren't happening around us. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. He didn't say run from it. He didn't say pretend it doesn't exist. He didn't say, I'm just going to take you out of it. You never have to worry about it. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. What did he say? But take heart. I have overcome the world. And our hope is in he who has already overcome. And so Christianity calls us to confront our present troubles with the help of Christ and the hope of heaven as armor and artillery. You see that? We now confront our present reality with the hope of Christ and the hope of heaven as armor and artillery. We have something with which to do the battle of life. And so, in closing... Our passage says in Hebrews 10, 23, we are to hold fast, fight for, cling to, stay near to the confession of our hope. It is eschatological, but it is grounded in history. The life, death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and intercession of the person of Jesus Christ. We are to keep that secure firm possession of it. Remain closely united with it. And again, when do you have to hold something fast? When there are challenges. And we've got challenges. And if I read my Bible right, we're going to have a lot more. And I'll tell you what will really challenge your hope is if you become one of those who walks by sight and not by faith. The Bible says that the righteous are to walk by faith and not by sight. Romans, Galatians, Hebrews says it. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. And if you walk by the temporal, by what is seen, by what is tangible, by what is merely discernible, you will begin to lose hope. Romans 8, 24 and 25 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So we need to walk by faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Trusting and resting in temporal things will challenge your hope. You put too much weight and worth in the things of the world, that's going to challenge your hope. That's going to shake you. You let those things become your foundation, and when the storms come, that foundation is going to erode real quick. Build your house upon the rock. Failing to have an eternal perspective will affect your hope. You got to keep your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this world, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 say. Since we have been raised up with Christ, keep your mind fixed on the things that are above, not on the things of this world. 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. There is a better a better one who is coming. Circumstances can easily overwhelm. You get your eyes too much on the circumstances, you'll begin to sink down into them. Remember that Jesus Christ is the one that walks on the water. Those storms that trouble us, they are under his wounded feet. He is the one who walks on the troubles of our lives. Secularism and its temptations will challenge your hope. 
This world is getting simultaneously more secular and more religious. The line is being drawn. Do not yield to the pressures of secularism. For wherever you may find them, and you will find them in the media, in literature, in schools, do not yield to secularism. Religion, oddly enough, will cause your hope to decrease. We're not called to religion. We're called to relationship. We're called to relationship. And finally, Satan would like to mess with your hope. But he's been disarmed. He's not on the throne. God is. Satan no longer has power over us. Be sure that he will kick you when you're down. That's when he comes. He's as dirty as they get. He's a father of dirty. He will kick you when you're down. Be ready for it. And know that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Cling to the confession of our hope without wavering. Be able to say, as the psalmist said in Psalm 71, for you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my confidence from my youth. And it says in our verse, do not waver, meaning don't bend, don't yield, be steady. I'll tell you what this world needs right now from Christians, a good witness. They've heard it. The world is waiting to see it. And there's no better time to display it than in times of difficulty. Therefore, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Don't yield. Don't bend. Don't give in. Don't give up. Be steady in your walk with Jesus Christ. The world needs to see some stability. And the most stable one I know is the rock that is higher than I, Jesus Christ. Finally, it says there in the last part of that verse, for he who promised is faithful. That's why we can hope, because our hope is based on him, not on us. You know what we are? We're cheesy. (laughs) That's what we are. But he is faithful. His past record, investigate it, look at it, study it, know it, because his past record is your future insurance. And he is faithful. Therefore, it says in Hebrews 6, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. This anchors our soul. This hope, this belief in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to have some corporate prayer. Because many in our community of faith have lost homes, possessions, lives of loved ones threatened, and then, perhaps more importantly, there are hundreds of thousands in our community affected that don't have any hope. What are they going to do? Is there hope in an insurance company? What, what are they going to do? We need to pray for them, that their eyes would be open, that their hearts would be enlightened to the hope of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Grab each other start to pray out loud, pray for our community that the hope of Jesus Christ would be made prevalent. Grab each other and pray.